Welcome to another episode of Relay Theology. My name is Justin Schieber, and with me is my co-host, Ben Watkins. Hello, everyone. We're going to be talking about the moral argument, and uh, we'll get to what that is in, in just a bit, but I'm going to introduce you to my guest here, uh, first name counter, last name apologist, uh, an odd <laughs> legal name, but nevertheless, he's with us to talk about the moral argument. Uh, John, thanks for coming on. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, you could just call me John, please. <laughs> I have to stay pseudonymous uh, for a variety of reasons. Oh, absolutely, so. yeah. Uh, so, so John, um, so you run this YouTube channel uh, called Connor Apologist. My first question, I think, is what got you interested in this topic and in, in the philosophical issues surrounding apologetics and counter apologetics? Okay, well, um, I spent, I, I grew, I was uh, born a Catholic. My family converted to being Baptists when I was like seven. And I was sent to those fundamental Christian schools where they taught you the earth was 6,000 years old and there was a canopy above the earth for the flood to come from. Oh, wow. And, yeah. So, and then I went to college, and I, luckily I didn't go to the Christian colleges that they try to, the schools try to put you to steer you towards. Got a degree in engineering. Uh, at that point, I started um, falling away a little bit, but then I kind of went back to the church, even though I had kind of renounced the um, young earth creationist style views that I had held. And I was active in my church, actually. Uh, my wife and I, before we got married, we made sure we were good with the church, and we were very active. I was the first person who opened the church every morning, every Sunday morning. I was there uh, for pra uh, practices for uh, sound. I was on the sound team. And eventually I started having doubts. Uh, and I was reading stuff on the internet, and then I kind of threw myself into apologetics to make myself believe again. Because my wife, I had converted my wife to being the kind of evangelical Christian I was, and my entire family was evangelical. And I started reading it, and I was trying to go back in, and it just didn't work. And I didn't stick. It didn't stick. I had, I of course, I went. The first thing that I found was William Lane Craig, and the argument that immediately kind of spoke to me was the Kalam co cosmological argument. But I have taken at least some college-level physics for my degree, and I was like, some of this doesn't, this doesn't sound right, right? And I started investigating and investigating, and then that spoke to my interest in philosophy that I had patentedly ignored uh, explicitly almost when I was in college, thinking it was useless. And uh, here, I, here I am, what, eight, nine years later after I graduated, uh, falling in love with this subject. Uh, so I started with doing counter-apologetics um, because I wanted to create videos and resources for people who went, who went through what I went through, right? You, 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 you either get apologetics thrown at you when you start to deconvert and you're looking for a way to answer what can be very sophisticated arguments and in some cases very unsophisticated arguments. Uh, and I feel like people who are going through that kind of emotional time needs something that gives them good answers that uh, an, a slick apologist can't just throw a counter argument right back at you. Right? I totally it's, agree. It's, it's to put it, basically put the foot down and say, no, no, no. Here's where the situation actually lies when you investigate this topic. Uh, Here's what the facts say. 
Correct. Like this is. A, I like to think of it almost as a. Not not that this is a game, but I'll, I, since I am a gamer, I kind of like to think of it as like the state of play. Like if you were to get a report on the state of play, and the arguments between for for and against God's existence, um, you wouldn't see either team has scored, but you'd find the atheist side is the ball f- much further down the field. What uh, What was your engineering? I'm a, I, I'm a computer engineer. Okay. Because I did my undergraduate in mechanical engineering. Ah. So I, it just the more and more we interact, the more I'm like, wow, we have a, we have a ton in common. Yes. <laughs> I saw, yeah, I saw, um, what is it? You, you had posted you, something, uh, you'd played Magic the Gathering, and I was like, oh, I play something similar. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I actually used to write for uh, TCGplayer.com. Um, oh, because I, you know, so I was on the, you know, I was going to Pro Tour qualifiers and really just trying to ground it out. And eventually, I got to the point where I was like, "Hey, I think I'm, I think I'm a little deep in this game." <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of backed off. I'm going to make yeah. a confession. I've never played Magic: The Gathering. <sighs> well, that'll change. So, so somehow we've landed on this topic, but uh, let's <laughs> let's kind of rein this in. Uh, to the to the moral argument. So so John, what is the moral argument? Okay, so the moral argument for God's existence, at least the most popular one that you'll find, is uh, presented by William Lane Craig. Uh, it's very simple. It's uh, premise one: if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Premise two is that objective moral values and duties exist, and the conclusion is therefore God exists. So what's the problem? <laughs> <laughs> so the the problem, and and what you'll hear very very often is a a kind of a tirade from apologists and religious people about how atheists have no grounding to their uh, their moral systems. They don't say that atheists can't be moral. Right. In fact, they'll be quick to point out that atheists can sometimes be more moral than believers. So the, the, here's the thing. So let's let's tie together um, the philosophical concept that's behind this. So this sounds like a very simple argument, but most apologetics have been polished and polished over many, many years to have something very simple up front that conceals quite a lot on the back end. So what the moral argument is about is moral ontology. And if you are like I was, when I started reading about the moral argument, you have no idea what the heck that means. So the idea is that moral ontology is about what moral values actually are. The nature um, of them. Yes. Like, so wh- how, how they correspond to reality. And so the, I, I got a, uh, a, a great primer on this was written by Jeffrey J. Lauder at Secular Outpost. And I it's borrowed, another thing we have in common. Yes, we. <laughs> I, I I gleefully um, took his points. Uh, so all credit, a lot of credit goes to him. So basically, like it, it's it's even hard just to say what moral values are and what moral duties are. And so, like t- explaining what the possibilities that that they could be kind of shed some light on it. I think so. One thing is that. Um, there's a view called moral naturalism and the idea that moral facts reduce down to facts about the natural world, right? And this is generally what a lot of atheists will argue for, that morality is. It's obviously compatible with atheism. Um, Another option is moral non-naturalism, which is almost like a fancy way to say Platonism. (laughs) Um, And this idea is that moral facts are facts 
in an a-causal reality. This is basically objects that exist in a platonic realm that cannot causally interact with the material world. Right, and this is also compatible with atheism. You don't have as many defenders of it, although Eric Wielenberg is a fairly prominent defender of it today. Um, and then the final one is the one the moral argument wants, which is moral supernaturalism, which is the idea that moral facts reduce down to facts about supernatural beings, specifically a god. Um, so, like, those are the three options, basically. Questions about what moral facts are. Uh, this is to be, I think, importantly contrasted, especially in the context of the moral argument, with moral epistemology, how we might gain uh, knowledge of these of these moral facts or come to understand our moral obligations or various different things like that. Those are fundamentally separate questions. Our knowledge of these things and what these things actually are. I would also bring up moral semantics. So, so ontolo moral ontology and moral epistemology all together are separate from um, moral semantics, uh, but yes. all of these qu questions um, that have to do with these topics would all be considered meta-ethical. So they would be uh, claims about moral statements, not necessarily about what acts or character traits are moral or worth having or worth achieving. So, so to, uh, the, the uh, best way to illustrate this is with an example. Um, so in metaethics, we're concerned um, with what is meant by normative terms like should and ought and a reason. And so various theories give various accounts of what these terms mean. And so um, non-naturalists like myself think that these concepts refer to properties in the world. And so that's what we mean when we use um, normative words like should. We're saying that there's this fact of the matter in the world. Whereas someone like a, a moral non-cognitivist who doesn't believe that normative statements are truth apt or express genuine propositions, they think that, uh, so emotivists, for example, believe that if you say you should not do X, that's the same as boo X. So you would say that the semantics on both of these views are different. One being that um, the non-naturalist is uh, those concepts are trying to pick something out in the world, whereas the non-cognitivist is saying, no, these, these terms are used to express attitudes towards something. Right. So um, maybe w one quick example, I think, that might help people understand, at least very much helped me, was to use an analogy popular in literature um, with water, right? So thousands and thousands of years ago, millions of years ago, our ancestors knew what water was, right? They knew it was wet. They knew it, they, could, they, knew they, they needed had a it to live, right? They, they, had, they knew what water was. But eventually, nowadays, we know that water is comprised of H2O, right? We have a chemical breakdown of what water is. And there are things that look like water, but they're not that chemical composition. And so they are not water, right? Now, the moral argument is trying to say uh, moral values would be equivalent to water in this case. And what we're arguing over is what they reduce down to, whether it's H2O or facts about God or, or if they reduce it about, all. Um, yeah, or if they reduce it all, right? It could just be that there is no further explanation, right? Or that normative facts are a different kind of fact than a natural fact. Yes. So um, 
so that that's that's one way in which mine and John's view disagree. We both we both uh, believe that morality is objective, but we did we have meta you know really kind of superficial meta ethical disagreements. We 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 just disagree on what kind of facts these are. We don't disagree that there are these facts, and we we largely I, I would assume don't disagree on what facts give us reasons. We just disagree on sure. what are the nature of those reasons. Is that, is that fair, John? I think so, yes. Um, so we, Ben and I, outside of the show, Ben and I have been, have been speaking, and uh, he's pointed to me to um, uh, Derek Parfait and his views about irreducibly normative concepts. You guys had an episode on that. Um, and I've been doing a lot of reasoning. I haven't really accepted... Uh, irreducible normal normative concepts into my heart yet i'm not sure if i'm ready to make <laughs> into that into my heart yet <laughs> yeah so there, there, there may not be a disagreement in the end uh it's just about what kind of i guess i think it's about what kind of fact uh a moral ought is so so to bring this back to uh the moral argument okay so those uh, two premises and the conclusion right what are the various different ways that one might uh raise a challenge to this argument Right. So the way you want to approach this, or for most of us anyway, is to reject premise one. Uh, very few people want to say that objective moral values and duties do not exist and reject premise two. Obviously, you could become a nihilist and therefore maintain your atheism. It strikes most people as implausible. Just a little bit, yeah. Um, so <laughs> the idea is we need to debunk the idea that if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Um and one of the one of the main ways I want to show this is um, to attack the idea of objective uh, in terms of moral values. Uh, so, what the idea is is that uh, theists or the people who who espouse the moral argument specifically will hold to something that's known as modified divine command theory, and so that says that what we ought to do is whatever is commanded by a loving God. And then when you pose the question, uh, you know, the Euthyphro dilemma, is something good because God commands it, or is something good, be or does God command something because it is good, the modified divine command theorist is going to say, hey, that's a false dichotomy. The good just is equivalent to God's nature, right? So God's nature just is goodness. So God is loving, therefore loving is good, Right. Yeah, and interestingly, that kind of move, I think, is also subject to a, a Euthyphro-like uh, kind of response. Yes, it's sort of related. So we, we, I call this the Euthyphro dance, right? We, have, we do the first step, and that's, you know, they respond back with God's nature. Now the second step is to say, well, wait a minute, is something good because it's in God's nature, or is it in God's nature because it is good? And sure. here, the apologists will accept one of the horns of this dilemma. They say, no. Something is good because it is in God's nature, right? And so you get this very counterintuitive idea from them saying that, you know, if two people love each other, right? And they, they have this loving relationship, and it, it's, it's, it's very good for them. Um, but if God doesn't exist, that exact same st state of being in love is not good anymore because there is no God to, that exists that has love in its nature, Therefore, that same action can't be considered good. Right. It's also a bit subject to like a kind of arbitrary objection. Yes. Where you know, anything uh, could be within the nature of God, and then by necessity it would be something that is good. Um, 
There's yeah. nothing within the classical definition of God that kind of parses out the kind of semantic content of what goodness is. And so there's nothing preventing us from saying, oh, well, you know, uh, <laughs> disrespecting consent in sexual matters is, is good. And so therefore approximating that behavior to that degree is good. That's just, that's quite absurd. Losing a priori way of claiming that God wouldn't command X. So you couldn't rule out a priori that God wasn't analogous to something like a cosmic Hitler. And so modified divine command theory, uh, on given that theory, if God was analogous to a cosmic Hitler, we would have then an obligation to, you know, obey this tyrant and it would be virtuous, you know, things like anti-Semitism would be virtuous. And that's a that's a rather implausible implication of such a view. Right. So what was actually one of one of the points I had in my video series was uh, what you guys are talking about there is brute facts. Right. And so a, a moral brute fact is basically um, it doesn't have a, it's not a logic, a logically necessary fact, but it is a, it's basically a fact, a contingent fact that has no further explanation. Right. And so the idea is, if you know, Christians say that their God is a loving God. Right. And well, the idea is, is that if love is only good because it is in God's nature and for no other reason, then the fact that God is loving is a brute fact. There is no explanation as to this. And this I actually got pushback from William Lane Craig and he, he made quite a blunder in his response. Um, the, the idea was that he says, well, God's a necessary being. Right. And so therefore, if you, God is loving, God is loving in all possible worlds. But that doesn't solve the problem of saying why God is loving in the first place, right? If God is a necessary being, all that means is that God has the same properties in every possible world. So to say that God must be loving in every possible world is to assume that God is loving. If God was hateful, God would simply be hateful in every possible world. And according to modified divine command theory, hate would be good. Yeah, I guess I guess an objection there could be that God is by definition loving, and so when you when you talk about when you use the word God, you are importing through the back door the assumption of loving. But I think a more kind of fundamental objection along the same lines as you're raising is what loving actually means when it when it gets down to the dirt. I, I, I th but I think what uh, uh, the point that john is is pressing it here is that you're already assuming the intrinsic value of love love yes right it's, you're already you're are you're building that intrinsic value into god so 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 god isn't really playing any explanatory role here it's just value is being built into him and then you're saying god's necessary right yeah i i don't find that uh, an explanation a very convincing explanation at all especially if you uh, when craig already grants that Basic moral truths are necessary truths, meaning they're true in all possible worlds. If it's wrong to torture babies for fun, it's wrong to torture babies for fun in all possible worlds. Well, if, if he's already conceding that they're necessary truths, he, he's conceding that they don't require further explanation. So I, it's, it's hard to see what, what role God is really playing here. At the end of the day, he's trying to insert the radically dualistic metaphysics of God into the clockwork of ethics. He's, you know, it, it gives him this apologetic tool to say, look, you know, most most uh, apologists, young apologists, they, and even lay people feel these intuitions of morality and religion being intertwined. Well, this is one way of trying to intertwine them, right? Yes. 
So the idea, the thing is, is that this gets actually quite laughable when you think about it. When you look at the field of contemporary metaethics, there's just a variety of views out there that can achieve objective moral values. And ironically, on uh, the modified divine command theorists and William Lane Craig specifically, their definition of objectivity is not met by their own theory. Um, at, at least, and at least it's until a watered-down sense of objectivity. Well, so here's the thing: they, if, in 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 his podcast response to my fir- very first video on the moral argument, William Lane Craig states that objectivity is just means mind independence. If it is a mind independent fact, um, it doesn't. It's it's not subjective. It's not not. It's uh, not dependent on human attitudes or responses towards it. I don't think you should say human, but yes, if that because well, he 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 has to say that because he right. can't say subjects because his own theory. I think he could say right. finite persons. He could say because yeah, or or non-divine persons. Sure. Which which if well, if he does say it that way, it is special pleading, right? Because or ad hoc. The idea least. the idea is that he says it must be a mind mind independent. Well, guess what? They conceive of God as a disembodied mind, right? And yeah. so. To say that, you know, to be objective in this way, well, it can't be. If you know, the nature of a mind is not mind independent, and there, I think, I think <laughs> by definition, <laughs> yeah, the the way that they so this this might be haha, we've caught them in a contradiction, right? But there is a way to harmonize this, or at least I think there's there's at least one way for them to do it, um, but it becomes a problem when they do so. So the idea is they could say, well, it is a mind independent fact that if God is loving, He is loving, and if it you know if loving is in God's nature according to their theory, then loving is good, right? And so that would be a mind independent fact. But this is a purely descriptive method of objectivity, and so if that counts as getting objectivity, then we have all sorts of brute facts about our natures as human beings that are dictated to us by biology and the laws of nature. And we could say uh, something like pain is intrinsically bad. Um, and pleasure can be intrinsically good, and there are ways that we can can cash that out. And those brute facts can constitute an objective way for us to get more starting points to form off our moral theory. Seeing this meta-ethical landscape is really important, and I, this this is one of the things that I've really liked about um, John's videos is that this this these meta these normative concepts that we're that are on the table are not limited to the command imperative conception that William Lane Craig is offering. I mean, that's one of several conceptions that you can take on normativity. So, um, you know, there's rule in reason involving conceptions like, like mine, there's rule involving conceptions where, you know, normativity is things like laws or um, Mm -hmm. codes of honor or etiquette. Um, there's other ones that are attitude dependent. So modern subjectivists, um, like course guard, you know, uh, take, take an attitude or motivational approach to it. Um, these are all just different ways of, um, conceiving of normativity in general. And so I, I always, I, you, you said earlier that it gets kind of laughable and I think it is kind of laughable when, when William Lane Craig wants to press the point that, that the atheist is committed to this imperative um, conception of normativity, that you couldn't have 
anything, no, nothing, there, there couldn't be a genuine difference between something being right or wrong or correct or incorrect unless there was some imperative line at the bottom of it. I, I just, I, I find that just an extraordinary claim that I don't think he gives anywhere near sufficient. Um, so, so there's actually another, there's another point there. So like if you were to push on this point, um, you get, this is, for anybody listening to this podcast, probably has listened to a fair number of debates and apologists spiel about the moral argument. And when they do so, they go on this giant red herring of how if God does not exist, then we're all just going to die. Nothing matters because we're all, the, the universe is, is going to undergo a heat, heat death and everybody is eventually going to be dead and that's the end of it. We're supposed and, to infer from that that there, nothing matters. Correct. And the idea that, or not, not just that nothing matters, is that, you know, on atheism, there's, th this means that there can be no objective basis for moral ontology on atheism. That's just false, because we're talking about moral ontology, what moral values are. And apologists are very explicit in that the moral argument is about moral ontology. And mm -hmm. when they complain about how everybody's just going to die in atheism, and, and there's no heaven or hell or anything for us uh, after we die... Um, that's talking about moral enforcement, right? That's not talking about moral ontology. So yeah. you could very well be the case that the, you know morality boils down to brute facts about our biology or something along those lines, and you know there is no inf universal enforcement mechanism on atheism like there would be on theism. But that doesn't mean that we don't have an objective basis for our morals. I also think it's uh, one of the things that often goes unnoticed in this first premise is that this isn't a probabilistic claim. So, the, so implicit in this first premise is the claim that if God does not exist or if atheism is true, then it's impossible for objective moral values to exist. Um, so, so in other words, atheism entails moral nihil some form of moral nihilism. Which is an incredibly bold claim that's an incredibly bold claim because because he's got to say that all these other views are are lot are logically incoherent they could they couldn't possibly be true um states of affairs involving an omnipotent and omniscient person are the only truth makers for basic moral statements that's that's what's implicit in this first premise and I, I can't remember which video of john's it was but he he lays out he he, he laid out several different Views, he said. Look, these are these are different options that an atheist can explore. And Craig's response to him, and I and I've heard it. Uh, I think he posed this to Kevin Sharp in their debate. Is he's like, well, it's not enough to just list these different views. And I'm like, yeah, yes, yes, it is. You, <laughs> you're making an incredibly bold claim. You're saying that something is impossible. His burden is to show that all these other possibilities don't work at all. And I, I, I don't think, I don't think he's, he's not done that in any of his debates. He's not done that in any of his written work. Um, he right. just, it's almost like he just completely ignores. So, so the, there was a uh, debate with uh, Michael Nugent of uh, Atheist Ireland had a debate with William Lane Craig fairly recently. And I had a, uh, I made a couple of posts say, Hey, Hey, here's some advice with your, for your debate. And one of the points I made over and over was exactly that point, that there are a host of, me of meta-ethical theories that are compatible with atheism uh, that can uh, give us an objective moral value system. And so Craig's response was to say that, 
all of those systems assume the intrinsic value of human beings and that on a the what he is alleging is that on atheism there is no basis for that assumption and that that's a cosmologist move right but the, and it's just it's just flat out ridiculous especially in light of the fact that we're talking about brute facts earlier about and built into craig's own meta-ethical theory and and once you cons- once you start doing philosophy about value and what makes us valuable right it's going to end in some explanatory ultimate that is very likely going to be a brute fact, although not always. I think there are some theories that don't fall into this paradigm, but uh, many of them do, including modified divine command theory and the idea that uh, moral values are ontologically equivalent with God's nature. Um, so the idea to say, you know, we could say that, um, you'll hear them say, um, because on atheism, humans are evolved via accidental processes, we are therefore no more valuable than other material objects, which is just ridiculous. It doesn't, the conclusion doesn't follow. We can fall in love. We can do poetry. We can do calculus. Right. There is a, (laughs) there are any number of, there are a number of things about us, which can give us our value. Right. And so once you have granted that. And you could even go maybe even further and state that you know the laws of the laws of nature, including evolution, would there's a limit to actually the kinds of beings that could be considered to be moral agents, right? That will also meet some of these criteria, and those themselves would be brute facts. And anything that had those properties would then be valuable, right? So, so th- here's something I, I I had this in my videos, and I, I wonder what you guys think of it. So once we we talk about values and value in itself, right? Um, I think one of the ideas that we could say that would be compatible with atheism is to say that the capacity to value is itself intrinsically valuable. Because in order to value anything at all, you must have the capacity to value. And if that's that's a trivial truth. Right. And but in this case, if that's just a trivial truth, then that is our basis. That could that could be our explanatory ultimate to say if you have the capacity to value, you are intrinsically valuable. Done. Or you could say something that, uh, um, even more general, just consciousness itself, conscious experiences are in themselves valuable. And so just being, by virtue of being a being that is conscious, this, this being has intrinsic value. It's that they have a property that is worth preserving. Right. And I, I, I mean, I, I think... Yeah, anyway, we we can always go back and forth on on which of the two has primacy there, right? Um, but I think I, the 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 end up the end point in terms of the moral argument is to say that this is a general truism about value itself that would be true even if even if a god did exist, right? God would be valuable because God had the capacity to value, or God would be of the highest value of the highest intrinsic value. Correct, right? And so I think. Um, you know, it, it makes sense. If I if I were to be a theist, I would say I would reject um, the idea that God's nature was the basis of uh, moral value simply because uh, to avoid the problem with brute facts so that you could say, by definition, God is the greatest conceivable being um, must instantiate all of the good, right, to its maximal degree, right? Mm-hmm. But to say that God's nature defines the good when you do that is to say is to leave the qualities of God and His nature completely undefined. Yeah, I, and uh, that the view that you just described that you would, if you were a theist that you would take um, 
is similar to the view that I would have if I were a theist. And it's, it's very similar to that of Richard Swinburne, where Richard Swinburne says, you know, look, these, there are these necessary moral truths, but, uh, Swinburne's kind of a rogue in this sense is in that he he still believes that God is necessary, but he doesn't believe that God is logically necessary in the sense of existing in all possible worlds. He's a logically contingent being. There's some possible world in which atheism is true. Well, if basic moral truths are necessary truths and God doesn't exist in all possible worlds, well, then God can't serve as the ground for basic moral truths, because there's some possible worlds which have basic moral truths, but there is no God. And so, but, and so then he avoids the self-defeating problem by saying that, look, we, st- we have an obligation to God because of the more general necessary truth that we have an obligation to please our benefactors. In the same way that we have this obligation to please our parents, we have this same obligation to please God. And there's, there's no infinite regress problem in this. There's no self-defeating problem in this. Everything fits in a coherent um, framework, at least prima facie, but you lose the moral argument. Yes. And I think a, an important thing that could be done in debates, if, if someone who's listening to this is going to debate someone, many times apologists will appeal to Nietzsche or um, I think – yeah, basically, atheists who agree with their premise, who agree with the moral argument, say God does not exist, therefore nihilism is true, um, is to point out, hey, look, here's Richard Swinburne, one of the most respected and well-established uh, philosophers of religion and contemporary philosophy, who rejects your argument, <laughs> who says that moral truth yeah. is logically necessary. Well, you, and you can always point that out. You say, look, this is this is a this worthless is- appeal to authority because I can appeal to equally valid authorities that had that are, that are theists but accept objective moral truths as being compatible with atheism yeah um i think i think one of the things ben pointed out earlier was um how the the the, the moral argument can be self-defeating in a way um at least when it comes to uh moral duties i think is a, a explicit point that we haven't kind of uh explained out why yet that's Um, a good point uh uh, can you unpack that sure so the idea is that so you say um modified divine command theory says that we ought to do what god commands us right that constitutes our moral obligations well one of the questions that you can ask is to say um where does the obligation to follow god's commands come from right And this is something that was actually answered by William Lake Craig. You can go to his website. I I quote him in my videos. And he states, his first response is to state that the obligation to follow God's commands comes from the nature of authority, which means that we ought to obey the commands of a competent authority. He seriously says that? He actually says that. Um, He says if we reflect on the nature of what it is to be a a duty. Yep, That's how he defines duty. And you know what? That's fine. If he wants to say that, that's at least a theory. It's an I can irreducibly normative truth. Exactly. Yes, I think it, it's, <laughs> it is a it is a it's a theory. I could disagree, but okay, that's his theory. But by stating that, he's just made the moral argument self defeating, because if we have to uh, if we have the moral obligation to follow the commands of a, a competent authority, and God does not exist, well, God is not the only competent authority. In fact, in his own article, he uses the uh, example of a traffic cop. 
who tells us what to do, and we ought to obey his authority. So we still have the moral obligation to follow the commands of a competent authority, even if a God did not exist. And so I pointed this out in my one of my videos uh, that he responded to in his podcast, and then he shifted things around and he said that, um, well, the, just the, the commands to follow God's commands, uh, he, he commands us to follow his commands, and it's an infinite regress, but it's a non-vicious infinite regress. What? <laughs> it's a virtuous circle. Yeah. yeah. So yeah the guy who says that actual infinites can't exist thinks we can have an infinite regress that's non-vicious uh, for, to constitute moral obligations. I thought that was cute. <laughs> That's so, one word for it. And it's well, not like he's not aware of this objection either. So This so is a classic Mackey, problem in, in about the independence of ethics. Yeah, J.L. Mackey raises this exact objection in, the, in his you know, seminal work, The Miracle of Theism. And I know that Craig is familiar with that work. Very, very much so. And Mackey puts it forward and says, look, this objection is decisive. This object, like, it does not work. And I don't, and I don't think that objection has ever been satisfa- satisfactorily answered. Yeah, the quote that uh, Ben is referencing there, uh, I've got it right here. He writes, "The commands of a legitimate human ruler do not create obligations. If such a ruler tells you to do X, this makes it obligatory for you to do X only if it is already obligatory for you to do whatever the ruler tells you. The same applies to God. He can make it obligatory for us to do Y by so commanding." only if there is first a general obligation for us to obey him. Right. And so the idea the idea for me is to say, okay, if you want to say that you can have this infinite regress, right, then, all right, fine, maybe you can save modified divine command theory for being self-defeating, but we can make the same kind of an appeal, right? Effe- effectively, by stating that um, if... Uh, if God has an infinite amount of commands to tell us to do something, that's still deriving an ought from an is. In fact, the article from Craig states explicitly that theistic ethic derives an ought from an is, which is the famous David Hume argument on morality. And so once you have granted a moral, uh, a moral meta-ethical theory, the ability to derive an ought from an is, then it's trivial for an atheist to come up with an equivalent uh, ought from an is. Um, but then you get into the problems that Ben brings up uh, at least in terms of uh, irreducibly normative, non-natural facts about uh, what it is to have an obligation. Like Mackie said, you the, to obey the commands of the king, you don't obey him because he commands you to. You obey him because you have the obligation to obey the command, right? And what is that? What right. is that? The, the reasons are higher right. than the king. What is that obligation? What is the ground for that obligation, right? Um, There's a higher-ordered fact of the matter <clears throat> that's giving you the reason to obey the king. Right. Um, I like um, John's bit on the grand metaphysical object. I'd like to hear him unpack because I I thought this was this this really gets at the core of it oh. because I think the grand metaphysical object is what that that apologists are trying to shoehorn atheists with, and I think that a lot of atheists that resist the second premise of the moral argument do so because they're afraid of taking on this grand metaphysical object. They don't want to uh, add that to their ontology because it, to use Mackey's phrase, uh, it's, it's too queer to be part of the fabric of the universe. And it's very different from what we understand things. Um, Correct. This, the, so this, this point, uh, this was in my very, very first video on the moral argument about how, uh, what they meant by objective. It was actually a misunderstanding on my part in terms of, uh, 
you know, to say that things are objective only if they reduce down to this grand metaphysical object. Um, but that's not exactly what the theists mean when they talk about things. But I think we've, we've kind of covered what they mean in terms of objective as mind independence. But they do conceive of they want morality to reduce down to a special kind of uh, grand metaphysical object. So it, moral facts must be facts about a god. Or, um, as, as Justin is very familiar with apologist Randall Rouser, they must be reduced down to facts about God or be some kind of platonic, a causal fact that exists in uh, some platonic realm. Uh, so, and that, you know, this, these are the two options that you must have uh, for morality to be objective. And, that, and that's just false, right? The, the, to say that it must reduce down to one of those two kinds of facts, but can't reduce down to natural facts. Um, or the fact that um, pain in and of itself and for its own end uh, is, is, a, is a bad maker, right? Is, is for something to be bad, right? As this if there's property. anything that could be bad, it is that property, right? That might not be the only property, the, that might not be the only natural fact that defines or can make something bad, but that is at least one, right? Yeah, so so I cash out this um, concept, uh, the grand metaphysical object. I use the phrase um, ontologically weighty implication or ontologically weighty um, property. So the 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 example that I like to get is that so if we're going to say that some act is is bad, that um, it's not the case that there's this ontologically weighty or grand metaphysical object that's a part of this act that commits us to, you know, some weird thing in the universe. We could say that these properties don't have any ontologically weighty implications. And one of the ways to cash that out, to give an example, is I always like to compare it to evidence. So someone's fingerprints being on a gun might make that, that uh, state of affairs be a piece of evidence. Well, I don't need some grand metaphysical object that's called evidence. I can't do some test to figure out if some uh, state of affairs has the property of being evidence. That's just that's that's not how the, the, the evidence doesn't have these ontologically weighty implications. And I think badness and wrongness are similar. They they they're, they're similar to being evidence. They're they're considerations which count in favor of or give us reasons to have certain beliefs or perform certain actions or even have certain desires. And so um, I think that it's really important in, in both John's view and my view is that we aren't importing any of these grand metaphysical objects. It, so so when the apologist tries to, uh, Craig always uh, does uh, says it, you know, we need some sort of grounding, some you know, something to, you know, otherwise we're just free-floating free in midair. That's all rhetoric. That's them trying to insert the grand metaphysical object or the ontologically weighty implications. And atheists don't have to accept that. And it's also the case that that um, at least the Craig, at least the view that Craig adopts, uh, which is a kind of uh, Robert Adams uh, view uh, in his book uh, Finite and, and Infinite Goods. Um, yep. A very plausible case can be made, and has been made by Eric Wielenberg, that um, that this view posits 
several ungrounded moral facts. If they are allowed these ungrounded moral facts, then 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 why can the atheist? Why why is he? Why are they off limits to him? And why why they're uh, pushing this point is because they're reducing things like we've said to God's commands and God's nature. Well, these are things. Yeah, the, these things are grand metaphysical objects. They're they have ontologically weighty implications. You know, these these would be things literally in the world as part of reality. Um, and right. so that that's the that that's that's where I would uh, part ways with the apologist. I would say say no, we don't we don't have to reduce these things to, to, to anything like what you're suggesting. Yep. No, I think I I think that's exactly right. I mean, this is what Justin was talking about there is basically what I was trying to get out with the brute facts. And then I, I really liked your unpacking about the, the idea about obligation, obligation and then the analogy to evidence. There's nothing that, that um, actually you were talking about, you were talking about goodness in terms of, or badness in terms of. Yeah. Yeah. No, that... so, so we can both do. So you would uh, cash out the concept or property of evidence in naturalistic terms. That's one route to go. Where I would resist that. I would say no. That we can't reduce properties like evidence to natural facts. And that's, you know, this is a part. This is an area where atheists can dialogue with one another and and disagree. There's there's a rich, rich traditions on both sides. You know. Uh, um, I'm in the natural, non-naturalist camp uh, with people like Derek Parfit and Eric Wielenberg and Michael Humer, but John's in the naturalist camp with people like Peter Railton and Frank Jackson. Um, I mean, these are these are very well respected <laughs> traditions where where people can have reasonable disagreement. And Craig Craig never never acknowledges any of this. He thinks it's that's. They can't make no, both of them are all of them are wrong, and not only are they wrong, but they're logically incoherent. They're impo- they couldn't possibly be right. right. And that and that's and that's where things just get silly. I mean, it, you know, the idea is we don't need to be railroaded into theism, and we certainly don't also need to be railroaded railroaded into either theism or Platonism. Um, and I I think that you you make a very good point, and I think probably one of the more compelling aspects of you know moving me over to your view in terms of non-reducible normative facts is that is, is the analogy between even on even on theism they have this problem of like well you must have this obligation to obey god right and but that obligation doesn't have a correlate to god to facts about god himself right right what does it even correspond to at all right they would, I think, in order for the, the real solution to Craig's problem would be to accept something akin to your view on the theistic side, right? And so I, I totally agree. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely Swim, right. Swinbird's view. Right. Yeah. This, this, would, this would be not a fact about God himself. It wouldn't, and then, you know, you would say there's not a fact on, on my side on the natural. There's not a natural fact. Right? But, but this, this point comes full circle to the euthyphro. So this is like these – the claims that we're making were made – thousands of years ago in the euthyphro saying that look no it's the reasons have to be independent otherwise it's going to be arbitrary and we 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 just end up if you want to avoid the problems of the first horn of the euthyphro dilemma 
the way to do it is to adopt a view like mine where no they're 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 given by they're object given value based facts that's what are, those are what give us reasons so uh, to borrow an example from Thomas Nagel the fact the natural fact that I will run over a dog if I don't step on my brakes that fact is of normal div importance that's the fact the object given fact that gives us the reason for me to step on my brakes that's what makes it the case it's not the um nature of an all-powerful being or the commands of an all-powerful being that makes it the case that I ought to step on my brakes. It's the fact that I might cause unnecessary harm to another sentient being. That yeah. fact, that, that, that's the fact that gives you the reason to step on your brakes. Yeah. No, I mean, there's just so much that we could get into there. Um, that, uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've appreciated you pointing me to reading Derek Parfait and Peter Ralton. Or David? Uh, yeah. So they've yeah. been interacting. So Peter Railton is one of the leading ethical naturalists, and Derek Parfit being one of the leading non-naturalists. They've in their in Derek Parfit's latest book uh, on what matters, Volume Three. They interact with each other, and they've resolved their differences. So their views weren't that like all Railton had to do was expand his view a little bit, and not to, you know accept some claims without. And also saying, you know, look, these claims don't have any ontologically weighty implications. And at that point, they resolve their differences. So I think maybe this is a really good point to end with here is that the idea is that we've given a bunch of objections to the moral argument. And we could show that the moral argument is false. And these are just kind of points and counterpoints that go back and forth mm -hmm. over a specific syllogism. The idea is, though, that it's kind of a if you were interested there's such a wealth of material to investigate and I think the best antiseptic for dealing with apologetics is to familiarize oneself with the philosophical literature because I think the more you know on these topics the more of a farce the kind of Biola style apologetics I think the best antiseptic to that is to study philosophy If you appreciate the content and the tone of what Real Atheology has to offer, please consider writing a review of the show on iTunes or contributing a modest amount per episode to the Real Atheology Patreon. The Real Atheology intro music is by Thomas Smith, with all other music by Jason Camone, The Lost State of Mind. We would like to thank our patrons, Matt Smith, Lucas Stewart, Matt Yellen, Richard Kane, John Danaher of the Philosophical Disquisitions blog, Kim Bushkovsky, Andrew Snyder, Jason Mekoweta, Evan Wirtz, Bob April, and Alexander Soange.